Hello and welcome to the Danielle Newnham podcast where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind their work. Today's guest is Dr. Robert Langer, a chemical engineer, scientist, entrepreneur, inventor and the most cited engineer in history. He specializes in the biotech fields of drug delivery systems and tissue engineering. He is also the co-founder of Moderna, a pharmaceutical and biotechnology company that focuses on RNA therapeutics, primarily mRNA vaccines, one of which you may have heard of because it was used globally for COVID-19. Bob Langer has received over 200 major awards, one of just four individuals to have received both the United States National Medal of Science and the United States National Medal of Technology and Innovation. He also received the 2002 Charles Stark Draper Prize, considered the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for Engineers, and the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, among many others. In this conversation, we discuss how he fell in love with science, what discoveries led to his pioneering work in tissue engineering and drug delivery, and what it takes to positively impact billions of lives. We also touch on the subject of anti-vaxxers, what it's like for scientists when misinformation rules social media, and how rejection is par for the course for a scientist. I honestly think this is one of the most important conversations I have had on this podcast. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Robert Langer. Bob, thank you so much for joining me today. You are known for being the most cited engineer in history, but I wanted to go back a bit more in time and ask you, what were you like as a child and what were some maybe childhood experiences which shaped you and the path that you took? Yeah, well, when I, I think I was a pretty normal kid. Uh, I'd like to think so, at least. You know, I grew up in Albany, New York, and I, you know, my dad ran a small uh, liquor store. My mom took care of me and my sister, who was two years younger. And, you know, we lived in a small house on this road that was about, you know, maybe had about 20 houses on it. And I had like a lot of friends that I'd, I'd play with, you know, baseball and football and basketball and stuff like that. And I think some of the things, though, that shaped me, my dad and my grandfather, they'd play math games with me when I was little, like five or even maybe younger. And I think that got me interested in, in things like that. And then there, there was also these uh, Gilbert sets that uh, they got me for presents. And Gilbert, they'd have like this erector set where you could make a, a rocket launcher or a robot. And they and it's kind of like almost the Lego of yesteryear. And uh but anyhow, so they had that, they had like a chemistry set. And I always loved magic and I'd mix chemicals together and watch them change colors and things like that. There was a microscope set where you could have shrimp hatch. And I think those kinds of early experiences did get me excited about science and arouse my curiosity and things like that. Absolutely. And I wanted to touch on that magic there because I've spoken to other people more in the technical field, like artificial intelligence. And there's a kind of common theme with A, them having computers growing up, but B, being really into magic. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the connection between magic and science? Well, I think magic is just fascinating. You know, you get you, you see the unexpected and uh, and and I've always just loved it I, ever since I was a little little 
boy. And I actually, still, if people are young enough, I have actually even have done uh, magic shows and stuff like that myself. I think I once did one for 400 kids at MIT. But um, at any rate, I think it's just seeing something you don't expect and just being fascinated by the fact that you could get such a result. Absolutely. I love the connection that people find between science and magic. I wanted to ask you, because you ended up studying chemical engineering. What led you to study chemical engineering? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to tell you that I really had a lot of deep thought about that, but that wouldn't be true. So first, why did I get into engineering in the first place? So when I was in high school, um, I was good in math and science, and I was not very good at other things like French and English in classes. So my dad and my da guidance counselor said, you should be an engineer. I really didn't know what an engineer was. I, I honestly thought they ran railroad trains, and I wasn't sure why that would be why math and science would be so helpful. But anyhow, I decided to go into engineering. I went to Cornell as an undergraduate. And the one class I liked and that I was good at was chemistry. I had a tough time my first year. You know, I think a lot of people went to better high schools and, you know, had a good science background. I probably didn't. But I did like chemistry. And like I said, I had that fascination from when I was little with it, uh, with the Gilbert chemistry set and the magic. So I majored in chemical engineering and like I said, I really didn't even understand what the chemical engineers did, but, but that's how I got there. It wasn't really well thought out. Well, it worked out pretty well. So you studied chemical engineering at Cornell, then you went to MIT. As a graduate student, I heard that you decided there and then that you wanted to make an impact and do something important. At that time, how did you determine what that would be? Yeah, that's a very good question. So when I was at Cornell, I was a teaching assistant my last year. And I really enjoyed explaining things to students and teaching them things in, in chemical engineering. And so when I went to MIT, even though I was supposed to do my thesis, and I'll get to that in a second, I spent a lot of time doing tutoring. I actually helped start this school for uh, working class kids in Cambridge called the Group School. I helped start the math and science departments there. And I really liked that. I, I just felt I was making an impact with those students and I, getting them maybe to really like and appreciate that you could do good things with math and science. So that meant a lot to me. I also was doing research there for my PhD thesis. And that was in the biological area. Very few people were doing research in chemical engineering in the biological area then. But actually, unfortunately to me, I, I didn't feel it was going to make that much of an impact, but it was the only thing that they had in the biological area or one of the few, and I didn't think the others were going to make that much either. So I kept thinking because I felt I was making an impact at the school and doing something that could affect education, that maybe there was some type of impactful research that I could do. So anyhow, just to, when I got done with MIT, all my friends pretty much went into the oil industry. So I thought, even though I wanted to do something impactful. I went to all these interviews and I got a lot of job offers, I think 20 job offers from Exxon alone, but they were talking about increasing the yield of some of these chemicals by tiny percentages, like 0.1%. And I kept thinking to myself, I don't want to do that for my life. And so I kept thinking about what I could do. So I started applying for teaching jobs that in fact, one was at City College of New York because they had an opening where I could do what I was doing at the group school, develop new chemistry curriculum. And I thought that was great. So I wrote them a letter applying for a job, but they didn't write me back. 
but I started thinking, boy, that could be great. So I found all the ads I could to do something like that, found about 40 of them. I wrote to all these places and none of them wrote me back. I guess I wasn't in the right box because even though I had done the school and I, that group school and I'd been at MIT, I, I, you know, I wasn't an education major. So at any rate, I, then I started thinking of other ways I could possibly make an impact with my chemical engineering education. And I thought about medicine. So I applied to a lot of hospitals and medical schools and they uh, didn't write me back either. And so then one day, one of the people in the lab where I was, Barry Bunau, he said, well, Bobby said, there's a surgeon in Boston named Judah Folkman. He said, sometimes he hires unusual people. And I wrote him a letter and he offered me a job. And I ended up being the only engineer in the hospital. And in particular, he had this idea that if you could stop blood vessels from growing to cancer tumors, that would be a whole new way to stop cancer. And I thought, boy, if I could do that, that would make a huge impact. So I ended up working in the hospital. I was the only engineer there and I worked on that problem. And that's kind of how I got started. That was kind of the thought process and the events that, uh, you know, that took me to where I got started. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because when you look back, there's certain elements of your path where they weren't kind of predetermined and yet you ended up doing, like you said, chemical engineering. And then you meet this doctor who, as you said, takes on rather different people and literally took you under his wing. And I think these are pivotal moments for you. I wanted to talk about Dr. Folkman because I think obviously he did have such a huge impact on your life. Can you tell us a bit about what he was doing prior to you turning up? And then when he discussed with you what you would be working on, I know there was a lot of people that think it couldn't be done. So what made you think it could be? Yeah, well, great question. So well, Dr. Folkman, he was a visionary guy who was actually the youngest full professor ever at Harvard Medical School. And he was a real out of the box thinker. And so his central idea was that if you could stop blood vessels from growing, then you could stop cancer and maybe other diseases that had blood vessels associated with them. And um, in particular, he also said that it had the theory that this was caused by the blood vessels came about because of what I'll call chemical substances that the tumor made. He called them tumor angiogenesis factor. And his theory was that the tumor angiogenesis factor would diffuse out and cause the surrounding blood vessels to start growing like crazy to the tumor. And they'd feed it. And that, of course, would provide nutrition to the tumor. It would get bigger and bigger. And of course, it could metastasize and spread through those blood vessels too, which would often kill. So that was his idea. And he was widely criticized for it. People at the time said that it was impossible. Uh, I mean, of course, I always say I didn't know anything about biology, so I thought it sounded really good to me. And and I I was very, uh, you know, I felt like he, he really was a, a visionary guy. Why did I think it was possible? I mean, you know, I, it certainly made sense to me. Like I say, maybe if I had read more of the literature, maybe I would have thought it wasn't. But he was very convincing, and of course, he ended up being right. Uh, my postdoctoral work, I, I did two things. One was the first key was creating what we call a bioassay for, for studying blood vessels. And the molecules that we were isolating that we thought might either stop blood vessels from growing or induce them to grow, they were all what we call large molecules, which could be proteins, they could also be 
nucleic acids like RNA or DNA, they could be polysaccharides. But anyway, they're all big molecules. So we had to develop a, a bioassay to study them. And one of the key issues in the bioassay was having a way to deliver them to the tumor area. And so I had to develop tiny particles that could do that. And that had never been done before. And in fact, the literature and everyone we spoke to said it was just impossible. They said you could never create tiny particles that could deliver large molecules. But if we were going to solve the blood vessel problem, I had to solve that problem. And the way I always say it's like I spent several years in the laboratory. I found over 200 ways to get this to not work. But eventually I found a way to get it to work. We made those tiny particles. We published a paper in 1976 in the journal Nature showing for the first time you could make tiny particles like micro or nanoparticles and really deliver any size molecule, including nucleic acids. This was the first time that things like well, nucleic acids or RNA or messenger RNA. Uh, we also you know, delivered proteins. So it's the first time that that was done. Uh, I should say when we did it, a lot of people were super skeptical of it and I, I couldn't get my first nine grants and I couldn't even get a job because people didn't believe that. But nonetheless, we did do it. And of course, today that underlies a lot of the company, what a lot of companies have done, including uh, um, you know the ability to create COVID vaccines and everything else. Also, we used that to, to develop the bioassay. And so we published also in 1976, a paper in science. I, I was first author on both of these. And the paper in science was the isolation of the first angiogenesis inhibitors. And it showed for the first time that they did exist, but also would provide a pathway for all future blood vessel inhibitors uh, to be tested and studied. And so that that's how I got started. Even though those things were criticized widely at the time, the blood vessel work would lead many years later to places like Genentech uh, and Napoleon Ferrar and others uh, isolating molecules that would become what are called Avastin and also others would isolate drugs like ILEA. These are all giant blockbuster drugs that are used on millions and millions of people to treat cancer, to treat uh, the diseases of blindness in the back of the eye, like macular degeneration or diabetic retinopathy. And of course, the drug delivery work, I mean, that's led to so many different products that affect all kinds of people from the COVID vaccines to new ways of treating opioid addiction to drug eluding stents. I mean, you know, they're used by billions of people. It's incredible. And I think it's so fascinating when we look back at the history of any kind of true innovation, there's always the naysayers, there's always the people that say it can't be done. And I think it's interesting because they're never the ones that, you know, are in the arena as that great um, Roosevelt quote says about the critic is, is never actually in the arena doing the work. But how do you not let it impact you? Did you ever question whether it could be done or do you just keep your head down and keep going? I do let it have an impact on me. It makes you sad. It makes you discouraged when people keep telling you you're wrong or it can't be done. But in terms of impact, I wasn't going to let it stop me. I certainly felt scientifically these things certainly might be possible. I'd also see these things with my own eyes, like with the blood vessel work. I could see the blood vessels actually disappearing or regressing. With the drug delivery work, I put some dyes in a little micro or nanoparticles, and I could see the dyes coming out, you know, day after day after day. I wanted to talk to you about patents, because I know in particular, I've heard you say before that for the long-acting drug delivery system, it kept being rejected, the patent, and you were looking into it at a point where you could some years later. 
And you found this statement from leading scientists who had said, generally, the agent to be released is a relatively small molecule with a molecular weight no larger than a few hundred. One would not expect that macromolecules, e.g. proteins, could be released by such a technique because of their extremely small permeation rates through polymers. However, Folkman and Langer reported some surprising results that clearly demonstrate the opposite. So when you read this and you'd been rejected however many times, what did you do next? When I saw that quote, you know, and they say they use the word surprising. So I, I had told the people at the hospital uh, that were technology transfer office that handles these patents. They basically advised me to stop because they said I was wasting a lot of money. But when I saw that and I could see that, how could the patent examiner not allow it after you have five top scientists saying that we, what we had done was surprising? I mean, that's almost the heart of what patent supposed to be about. So I showed it to them and they flew down to Washington to talk to the patent examiner. And he said, well, if I could get written affidavits from each of these five people that wrote that quote, that they really did write it, he would allow the patent. And so I wrote them. And even though I was this young guy, they were nice enough to write me back that they wrote it and we did get the patent. What's great is that you had the foresight to look into it because some people would have given up, especially with the pressure coming about the money being spent on it. But why was the patent refused then? What was their reason for refusing it? Just that they didn't believe it was possible? Well, I think there's many things. Sometimes it's not just that they, they don't think it's possible. I mean, you get different reasons. You know, they'd write other things about what people might have done. And, you know, it wasn't straightforward, but I felt like that what they were trying to say was that people had what we call immobilized enzymes. In other words, people had bound uh, to a, a tiny particle, some large molecule. But of course, when they bound it, they didn't leave. They didn't get released. Nonetheless, the examiner would cite that kind of stuff and say, well, if people bound things, then hasn't this already been done? And, you know, we keep trying to explain that that was exactly the opposite of what we did. But I'm not sure that, that he fully understood it. So in the end, you know, having people just say that what we did was surprising, you know, that, that made a big difference. It's interesting, though, because in the technology field as well, there's always been a lot of talk about patents and whether it's worth going after them. And a lot of it is because a lot of the reasons why people say you don't need to is because of the cost is obviously quite phenomenal. But I think that over time, we've learned that actually having protection over the work that you do in the IP is really important. And obviously, it's the thing that you can then sell, which actually leads me quite nicely onto the fact that you have started many biotech companies, I think, well, I know it's over 40 now. My understanding, if we go back, I think it was to 1983, I think it was a pivotal year for you because funding is always something that's so hard to get. And my understanding is that it took you a while, but you got there and you started to get funding, but it was difficult to start with. And I understand that you became a consultant, a company approached you and they wanted you to become a consultant. And they also then wanted to license some of your work, which was fantastic because it meant more money into the lab. But the problem was that these companies were then not able to execute for various reasons. And am I right in thinking that's the year where you thought, well, maybe I can start my own company? Yeah, well, that's that's pretty close. I mean, that absolutely did happen. It took me many years to get that patent. And I wrote a lot of scientific papers in the meantime. And so about nine years after we had started, I'd started in 74, uh, International Minerals and Chemicals, it was a multi-billion dollar company. They contacted me and said, 
they, they want just what you said. They wanted to license what we did. They wanted me to consult and they gave me a grant. And the next year, Eli Lilly actually did the same thing. And I thought this was wonderful, but the, both those companies, like you said, they would work on it, but they, they give up much more easily say than I would. And they both did. They both gave up. And then I think it was probably the next year, 1985, that Alex Klebanoff, one of my good friends, who was a professor at MIT, said, Bob, we should start our own company. So I was able to get those patents back. And we did. We started this little company, I think a year later, called Enzotech. And, and again, it took us a little while to raise the money, but we did. And of course, that today then merged to become a company called Alchemies. And they make a lot of these different little microsphere products that are used by many, many people to treat opioid addiction or schizophrenia and other diseases. When I did my research, I could see that you have impacted, I mean, we're looking at figures of billions now, and it's in different areas. And your job when you first started, I know you said that when you were working at that Boston Children's Hospital, you were seen as the engineer, like, well, you were the engineer, the only engineer, and you were seen as not necessarily a medical member of staff, but yet your way of thinking, because it was different to everyone else, because of your background, your experience and your studies, meant that you thought outside of the box, which I think is quite a theme in most of your career. Also in the 80s, you were doing some work on designing materials. And like I said, it was driven by medical doctors previously. And I think from what I've heard you say before is that they found their inspiration in the home, whereas you didn't. So can you tell me a bit about that and more about your work on that side of things? Yeah, that's a great point. So you're right. When I was in the hospital and I was obviously doing a lot of work on medical things, I was curious how did materials find their way into medicine? And what pretty much happened, as I could see, was they'd go to their house, the medical doctors, and find some object in their house that kind of resembled the organ or tissue they wanted to fix. So in the case of the artificial heart, this started in 1967. Uh, what they did was a couple of the surgeons, they went to their home. This was Bill Pierce. And he said, well, you know, if he's making an artificial heart, he needs something material with a good flex life. And they thought, well, a lady's girdle has a good flex life. So that's what they made the artificial heart out of. In 1967, that's still actually what they make it out of today. They're called polyether urethanes. So basically that's how that happened. And then also other examples like for breast implants, one of those was a, a mattress stuffing because it was squishy. So since I knew chemical engineering, I started to think, well, maybe we, you know, and I should point out that that, that strategy of going to your house that created problems when blood hits the surface of the artificial heart, it could form a clot and that clot could go to the patient's brain, cause a stroke and they die. And the breast implants, you know, if they were made of a mattress stuffing, that's not always the, you know, most biocompatible material. So I started thinking maybe we could do what I'll call sort of rational materials design and, and ask the question, what do we really want in a biomaterial from an engineering standpoint, chemistry standpoint and biology standpoint? and then synthesize it for first principles. And we've done that a number of times in my career, uh, you know, just with that idea in mind and created all kinds of new materials. When I look at a lot of the big companies today that are doing extremely well in different fields, in fields that are quite unique, even if you think about Elon Musk, it's very clear 
that his engineering brain is what got him there. We know it's not because of a lot of other things, not because of his personality or warmth <laughs> or anything. But, you know, that kind of idea that you're starting from first principles is a really interesting one. And I think when going back to the kind of beginning of this interview, when you were talking about how you were teaching those high school dropout kids, it was really interesting because when I did my research, I understood that like the first year, not many wanted to do the science and maths side of the things. They didn't think it was necessary. And then like literally the next year, you had way more students coming on board and I think it's we need to highlight engineers in a way that we encourage children to be more excited about maths and science because I don't know what it's like in America but I definitely felt growing up that maths and science were seen as the hard subjects and often when it came to university you'd see majority male I'm sure it's changed it's been 20 years since I was at university but it was really kind of a thing that either people would say it's extremely difficult, you have to be really good at it to go into it, or it was just seen as very male dominated. Just so slightly going back a bit, when you have students come on board, what is it that you're trying to get them excited about? They're obviously already on that path of science and engineering, but saying actually we could get to younger students, how would you get them excited about that path? Yeah, well, I think there's two things that I've tried to do as a teacher and as a mentor uh, along the lines you ask. One is to get across that science can be fun, you know, and that gets to the points you were making earlier about magic, I mean, and, and other things that sci- that you can make things that are fun. And But the other, which I think is even more important, is to show that it's relevant, that through science you can do things that can change the world. And I think that the people in our lab and the students that work with us, that have worked with me for years, they know that the work they're doing not only can be, I hope, fun and and curiosity driven, but also can have a great impact on the world. And uh, whether it's creating these particles that could deliver pretty much anything and and be used to treat different diseases and things like that. And, And so I think that those two themes are what I generally try to do. And I, I think also, that when people see that they can do good things with science and that the work that the people that were there before them had done, whether it's starting companies that have created products or other things like that, that could do good for the world. I think that makes them feel, yeah, I'd like to do that too. Absolutely. And I really wish and hope that in this day and age, this is how it's portrayed to children at school. Because I think like you were saying, growing up, there are certain elements of your childhood and that really got you excited about science. And I think that's what we need for this generation, if it's not already happening, which I hope it is. Just going back to the 1980s, it seems to have been a very pivotal and important decade for you. You're widely regarded as the founder of tissue engineering, which is a funny term, the founder of it. But can you tell me what set you down this path and how your idea was first received? Because I think like a lot of the ideas that you've had, it was met with some curiosity, shall we say. Well, you're putting it nicely. So what happened was, again, some of this goes back to working at Children's Hospital. And one of the people I met there was a young surgeon named Jay Vacanti, who's a good friend of mine. And he and I together really did this. So after he worked with me on the blood vessel work, he became in charge of the liver transplant unit at Children's Hospital. And he would you know, do transplants on these little babies all the time. And that was the only way they could live was giving them a new liver because they had liver failure. And then one day he said to me, Bobby said, could, is it possible to make new tissues and organs from scratch? And he and I started talking about different ideas. And we came up with this idea 
that maybe you could create a scaffold out of materials. And I had done a lot on polymers, so that's what he had, you know, was interested in. And, and then you could put the right cell types on them. This was way before people even talked about stem cells. Now you could put those on too. But, but the idea is you, if, that if you had the right scaffold, the right cell types with the right kind of what I'll call reactor conditions and the right media, that's the nutrients you give it, then maybe you could literally make a tissue from scratch. And so that's how that started because of Jay and myself working on that. And you're right, it, when we first proposed that, it again, met enormous skepticism. We couldn't get a government grant, it was an NIH grant or anything. But today, of course, that principle has led to many, many different tissues that are now being developed for patients, including skin, which is FDA approved uh, for burn victims or patients that have diabetic skin ulcers. It's also led to this whole idea of organs and tissues on a chip, which a lot of companies are now developing. And the idea is that if you made the organ or tissue on a chip, maybe that will someday reduce animal testing or human testing. You could also discover drugs much more rapidly. But you're right, when we first did this, it was, and for many years, there was a, a lot of skepticism. But now many, many professors are doing it, many companies are doing it, and so it's good to see. I think your story needs to be told more widely because this idea that you can be working on something for years and really have such a strong belief in it, and yet there's so many people that are coming for you and trying to almost derail you by their negativity, and yet you keep going. So what would you say are some of the traits that you have, or the scientists that are in your lab have, that allow you to keep pushing on even when it might not be looking possible? Well, I think part of it's being stubborn. Part of it's having a belief that you really want to do something that will make a difference. Part of it is believing that the science can be done. Part of it, I also think, has got to be being patient enough. I mean, which I'm not a very patient person, but patient enough to know that science doesn't happen overnight, you know, when you do these kinds of things. And part of it's just perseverance and hard work. That's brilliant. And also, I wanted to talk to you now about COVID. Obviously, we've said at the outset that you are part of Moderna. You were a co-founder there. I wanted to ask you, because the vaccine that you were so instrumental in has saved so many millions of lives. I know you set it up in 2010, so it was extremely well established, I guess, as far as these things can go by the time that COVID hit. So I want to start at the beginning, though, because one thing that happened during COVID was we started to hear a lot of terminology that we as laymen were not used to. So I want to ask you, first of all, what is mRNA? Because I know that the mRNA vaccine, my understanding is it's encoded a spike protein of the virus encapsulated in lipid nanoparticles. But I did think when I was reading this that the layman of us all do not understand that. So can you just give me a, a little rundown of what mRNA is and what was created from Moderna that became the vaccine? Sure. So, so there's a central dogma of molecular biology, and that central dogma says that DNA makes RNA, that's mRNA, but DNA makes RNA makes protein. So a way to think about it is that so many vaccines and other things, drugs by, you know, today. I mean, this wasn't true back in the mid-70s. I mean, there was only one protein therapeutic then, which was insulin. But now there are many antibodies, vaccines, and so forth. So the idea was that people had made protein therapeutics and they made protein vaccines. I mean, a great example is a flu vaccine that you can make flu vaccine by growing up eggs, but it takes, you know, a long, long time. And if you, other vaccines, you might be growing cells up or other kinds of things 
but that also takes a long time and is extremely expensive and so forth. Also, there's a lot of guesswork when you start something like a, a year or more in advance to grow these things up because you don't know what flu is going to happen each year, um, you know, whether it's H1N1 or H1N2 or whatever. So one of the reasons flu vaccines aren't very effective right now is because usually often people guess wrong. I mean, and it is a guess. So at any rate, going back to the fact that if proteins are really the end thing that you want, but it's very difficult to make and there's different diseases you can't treat with them. Another way of doing it would be what if you could give the patient the mRNA and then the body could make the protein and body would rather than be a factory that takes a year to do to make or more, the body could do it. So part of the trick is having the RNA that you could put into the nanoparticle and some of that really dates back to you know the 1974 work that we, 1976 work that we did improved by many 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 other people over the years including scientists at moderna and many others now you have these little lipid nanoparticles you put the the messenger rna in that you inject it into the body and the body makes the protein from the messenger rna and in this case that you mentioned it makes the spike protein and then the body makes antibodies and immune cells so that if it ever did see that protein, the body would destroy it. And that's the COVID vaccine that, that so many people have. And both Moderna and also BioNTech and Pfizer have done that. And it's certainly by far the most effective vaccine for COVID. I think Fortune or Forbes magazine, I forget which one, they had an article showing that I think in the U.S., over 50 companies tried to make a, a vaccine for COVID and only two, those two, the mRNA vaccines by Pfizer and BioNTech and by Moderna, those are the only ones that are around today. All the others failed. They also pointed out in that same article that I think over 200 companies or over 200 therapies for COVID were attempted and only one out of those succeeded. So it's, it's a very difficult thing to do, but this, this technology enables that to happen. And I think it will enable many other things to happen in the future. Absolutely. Random question, but I'm truly interested. Can you remember where you were when you first heard about COVID? And did you think it was going to be as serious as it turned out to be? Yeah, well, actually, we were away when I first heard about it in Asia on a winter vacation. And I don't remember all the details, but my daughter was always very alert to all these things. And I think we were flying back to the Hong Kong airport on early January. Um, and she'd heard about it even before then that there was some bad virus. And she was very worried that we were going to go through this airport and get this disease. Anyhow, my wife looked into it, and I think that we heard that probably wasn't going to be such a big problem. But that's when I first heard about it, when I was over in actually Asia for that vacation. Wow. And when did you think that this was something that Moderna would be able to help with? Or were you approached? How does it work? Well, I, I thought, I mean, some of this goes back to 2010. I thought Moderna, you know, we had this concept. I thought it would be the most successful biotech company in the world. I felt this was a really good technology and potentially revolutionary. Of course, really, the other thing, of course, that ended up making it so successful was the people that came, like Stefan Bonsell, who's the CEO, and Stephen Hogue, who was the president, and many, many others. Nubar Fayan, who was one of my co-founders and has been the chairperson of the board. But the fact that we had so many great people, coupled with a powerful technology, 
I felt we could do pretty much anything. I should add that by the end of 2019, Moderna, even though these are early stage, Moderna, I think, had 13 different products in human clinical trials, I think eight of which were vaccines. And so they were early stage, what are called phase one or phase two. But, but it certainly seemed that they were looking good. They looked safe and they looked like they were making antibodies in those other diseases that we were going after. So I was hopeful that we could do anything. Amazing. I wanted to ask you, what do you think the impact of COVID has had on the field of science? Because from, as I always say, I'm a layman, uh, from the outside perspective, I feel like it opened our eyes to science in many different ways. Those that work in it, what's required to, to achieve something fantastic, how funding is so necessary for research. And just it opened our eyes, I think, to the wonderful world of science. From your perspective, what impact do you think COVID had on the field of science? Well, I wish everybody thought like you, and I think the majority of people, significant majority, do feel like what you said, that that it, it shows what science can do. Science can change the world, can make it a better place. It can save, in this case, many millions of lives and prevent enormous suffering. But as you know, there are also people who are anti-vaxxers, and I think that's sad, but everybody has a, a right to say what they think. And so I think it also exposed that kind of uh, thinking as well. But for the most part, I think the majority of people would feel that what you said is absolutely correct, that science can do wonderful things, can change the world, can save lives. And of course, that's why I do what I do. And a lot of other people do as well. Absolutely. I think what I would also add is further on to your point there is that actually it was really interesting to see. Obviously, it's the first time in our lifetimes that we've seen the world change on its axis in such a way where everyone everywhere is pretty much simultaneously going through the same thing. So in some ways, when we all went into lockdown early on, I felt like the world was really united and everyone was just in awe of science. And like you said, I don't know how and why, but the, the tide turned. I always like to... <laughs> blame the media I think you know and I encompass social media in that but while we spent the first few weeks really in awe and doing everything we were told and doing our distancing and in the UK we'd all come out on a Thursday night and clap for our NHS and science workers and show our appreciation in that way but at some point the tide did turn and that was something that I wanted to bring up with you because I wondered how, whenever you see these fantastic scientists and science communicators that they'd be on the television explaining what was going on step by step. And I really felt in the early days, we all looked at them like, oh, my God, these poor people, they're literally not getting any sleep. They're working tirelessly because they were. And yet something happened. And I don't know if it happened on social media or through traditional media or what I think maybe some people just got fed up with doing what they were told I don't know but at some point the tide turned and it turned against the very people that were doing this brilliant work and I wanted to ask you do you have any insight of how fantastic scientists and communicators how they deal with that basically how do they deal with the public going from absolutely on a pedestal to vilifying or even ridiculing and it wasn't just scientists I know Bill Gates you know, he got his fair share of abuse on social media. And I just wondered from someone who's within the science community and someone so closely linked to Moderna, how do people deal with that? How do they carry on when they have this vile 
tide or mob turning against them? Yeah, well, I, th I think there's two things. First, there are people, like you say, that turn against you. I think some of that has to do with the media. Some of it has to do with politicians on both sides of the aisle. But I think, I mean, for me, it's like it's, it's not being criticized isn't new. You know, I've been criticized for the science and that people kept saying things were impossible. And I mean, with Moderna, of course, for years, stock analysts and clinicians and scientists would say that would never work. So you kind of get used to it. You also find that you have people who are also very, very supportive of you. And I think you got to get to see who your real friends are in situations like that as well. So I think there's always a support group for people. You know, a lot of people, I mean, I, I still feel most people at the end of the day do have a tremendous amount of respect for what scientists and clinicians do, but you're right. Some people don't, and uh, you live with that. And but at the end, you have to feel in your heart that you're doing the right thing, you know. And I I feel like what we're doing, it's not only like again, if I take the COVID example, I mean that's the first step. I mean the you know in terms of showing what mRNA can do, Moderna is using the exact same kind of technology plus a few other things to create new cancer vaccines, which I think has the potential to to provide totally new treatments for cancer and many other diseases. And when you see that, when you see the data, you know, I think something like uh, the Moderna trial with Merck uh, had this remarkable effect of curing people with really bad melanoma. And I think it will also be helpful for many other things. So regardless of what people say, I mean, my feeling is I want to do the best science I can, and I want to see as many lives saved or improved as I can. And so if people are opposed to that, I mean, I guess that's their privilege, but it won't change what I do. Brilliant. I'm glad to hear that. When you were talking there about the impact on people's lives, you have positively impacted it being possible to calculate, but it's got to be in the billions. When you know that, how does it make you feel as a scientist, someone who started his career wanting to have an impact? When you think about that figure, how does it make you feel? Yeah, well, when I got the Queen Elizabeth Prize, that's the world's top engineering prize, they said it was over 2 billion people then. That was in 2015, and that was before COVID and what Moderna did. It makes you feel that you've done something really important and that your students and your colleagues that you've worked with have done something really important that makes the world a better, safer place. And it certainly makes you feel like, boy, you want to continue to, to do those kinds of things to do good for the world. And so I guess that's that would probably be the best answer. And what are you working on now? I mean, I'm sure it's a continuation on what you've been working on for many decades already. But is there anything that you want to share about what you're working on now? Yeah, well, you mentioned Bill Gates before. And, you know, so we're doing a lot of work on taking some of the types of technologies we've developed that are affecting lots of people in the, you know, say in the US and Europe and Asia, and trying to help make sure that we can help people in the developing world as well. So we're creating newer kinds of vaccine systems that a patient won't have to go back for a second injection for. We're developing new kinds of pills that I think will be helpful in lots of places in the developing world. They don't even have good, decent water to drink with. So where you could take pills that don't need water or take things that don't need water. We're developing pills that could last for a week or a month. We're developing much better kinds of nutrition that, that it could be used as well. And then the whole other aspect of what we're doing is still developing better and better 
ways of targeting drugs to specific places in the body, which I hope will be helpful for cancer and other diseases. And then the work I mentioned about trying to create new tissues and organs from scratch, which whether it's to try to combat hearing or loss or, or spinal cord repair or making new blood vessels or making a new pancreas and also enabling you to do that on a chip so that you could do drug testing say for brain diseases on a chip and understand things better. One of my postdocs is, is doing some great work on creating a brain on a chip that could enable you to study brain diseases better, maybe come up someday with better treatments for Alzheimer's or ALS or other diseases. So all those kinds of things. We still have a very large lab, probably over 100 people working on these things. And of course, uh, and, and the people that come out of the lab often go become professors at great universities and you know, that, and have had great careers or they've started companies and also had great careers. Listening to you makes me extremely optimistic. And I would say that science in many ways might have a kind of PR problem because we often hear, I think, about, especially in like traditional media, we hear all about the doom and gloom of various diseases and COVID and all the negative things that happened as a result. And we focus less, I think, especially in the UK, our media focus less on the positive sides, like how you've been describing. So I do hope that in time to come, we have a, a better way of communicating what's going on in the exciting field of science. And obviously, you are a big role model within that because you have done such amazing things. If I was to ask you, which I think it would be hard to answer, but I will try, with all the things that you've done and all the things you're working on now, what are you most excited about? Well, I'd probably break that up into two categories. One, I'm very, very excited every time my students get great jobs. And I'm, I feel like that's probably my single greatest achievement is how our students have done. Probably over a thousand people have gone through the lab and, you know, just to pick some examples in the US, I think 12 are professors at Harvard, 10 at MIT, 10 at Stanford. And actually, if from the UK standpoint, uh, you know, the professors at Oxford, at Nottingham and Manchester and so forth, but they're everywhere and they've done great. And they've also started companies that have done great. And on specific science things, I think the work that we did that did go against conventional wisdom that enabled nanoparticles and microparticles to be created and today trying to use those to try to treat all kinds of diseases like whether it be cancer or really any disease. Outside of what you do on a day-to-day because -day, I feel like you're somebody that has lots of ideas and probably as an engineer you travel around and see problems that you want to fix. If time and money was no issue and you could take a sabbatical from what you're doing What's one big, huge problem that you see that you would like to fix? Well, I do feel the idea of trying to create new tissues and organs from scratch, I mean, which we are trying to fix, but I mean, that is the one that I feel would be incredible. I would love to see that fixed where you could make anything if, you know, where you could do things from helping people with brain disease to helping people with heart disease. And if you could make these kinds of tissues, I think that would be great science and it would also, you know, have a terrific effect on humanity. And based on, because I know you can't predict this, but based on experience, if you were to guess how far away we might be from achieving that, how far out do you think we are? 
I think it's a continuum kind of answer because there's so many tissues and organs. You know, I think, like I say, we have new skin now that you can make for burn victims and patients with diabetic skin ulcers. The idea of creating new blood vessels is in very advanced clinical trials. And a number of others, of course, will take decades. But it'll be a continuum depending on, on which tissues and organs we're talking about. There's been some recent progress in diabetes, pancreases. But it's always hard to say. Sometimes it depends how much funding goes into it or how successful companies are that are developing these things. So I think we'll see a continuum from the fact that some are already there to some, you know, will there'll be more advances, you know, I think over the next 10, 20, 30 years, and that will make more available. And also, I think they'll get better and better. You know, you might have first generation, second generation kinds of things like that, too. Absolutely. I'm very grateful that it's something that you're working on. Final question, which I ask everyone, because we start the interview at the beginning, and I just want to visit it for a moment. So going back to a younger Bob, if there's one piece of advice or one thing you'd like to say to him, what would it be? I guess I I would probably say, you know, if, if things started looking bad, don't give up. Though I think I probably learned that the hard mm. way, but I'd probably reinforce that, you know, that that if, if, if it does relate to things that you asked, that if things start looking, you know, if you get a lot of criticism, a lot of rejection, don't give up, just keep trying. That's such great advice. And it's great advice for my listeners who are also founders as well as inventors and scientists and many other fields. So thank you, Bob. I really appreciate your time today. My pleasure. You asked great questions. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Dr. Bob Langer. And thank you to Bob for graciously giving me his time and sharing his remarkable life story with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you get your podcast from. And if you have two minutes to spare, I would be enormously grateful if you were able to leave a review because it always means so much to me to see what you think of the podcast and it helps others to find it too. But as always, I wanted to leave you with a quote today. And today this comes from scientist Michael Faraday, which I think sums up the beauty of science. He said, it is the great beauty of our science, chemistry, that advancement in it, whether in a degree great or small, instead of exhausting the subjects of research, opens the doors to further and more abundant knowledge, overflowing with beauty and utility.